Well, it's only 9.06 and I'm already on my third cup of coffee. How's your morning going? Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, I, I normally have about three cups of coffee spread out during the course of the show. I've had all three of them before the show even starts this morning, and I can feel it. My goodness gracious, and there's so much going on here. I'm going to have to remind myself to talk slowly because I tend to talk fast, and when I have this much caffeine in me, I talk even faster. I could actually probably hold a carton of cream right now and have butter in the next 30 minutes. (laughs) I'm sure that's what you came for this morning. By the way, I've got to say the technical term for today is gross, um, I, it is, it is 96% humidity, uh, at the, I, I, so I'm in, for those of you listening, have no idea where I am. I am in, uh, Macon, uh, in the middle of, of the state of Georgia, and it is 96% humidity on my side porch, according to my weather gauge as the, the outer forces of this tropical storm, uh, down a Marco or whatever it is. I, I don't know why Rubio is, is suddenly making it all muggy here, but nonetheless it is. And, uh, there is rain all North of me. I, I don't care where you're listening right now. Uh, in Georgia, you're probably going to get rain today. Uh, in fact, it is raining, uh, heavy in the Athens area. It is raining, uh, up in, in, uh, the Northeast Georgia, uh, Hambersham, Rabin County, that area, you got rain. It's, it's raining, uh, more incoming to Floyd County right now, up 75. It's just, it's it's a gross day. I'm not going to do a weather radar reading for you guys. I got to do so much of it in the afternoon, but it's just nasty in Georgia. Uh, those of you outside of Georgia, you, you, you maybe you're okay, depending on where you are. If you're on the Gulf Coast, though, gosh, okay. L- let me, before I get to what I was going to say, uh, the, these two, we've got, let's see, fire tornadoes, murder hornets. We have an incoming election day asteroid. We've got earthquakes, volcanoes. We've got a global pandemic. We've got two hurricanes hitting at the same time. What is God trying to tell us? It's like we've got, I mean, the plagues of Exodus are all on top of us. We got locusts in China. Is anybody paying attention? Is this what the birth pangs are? I'm, I'm starting to wonder. Okay, we must segue. There is interesting data out uh, after the Democratic Convention. Today will begin the first day of the Republican Convention. Believe it or not, CBS News actually shows that President Trump got a bounce from the Democratic Convention. And I suspect I know why. Now, CBS News says that Joe Biden's this is this is weird polling. CBS News says that Joe Biden's uh, his his likability rating went up by five points. But it did not change uh, his margin uh, with Donald Trump. But Donald Trump went up five points with independent voters. Now, independent voters, you do need to know, independent voters, there's a term for independent voters. They're called Republicans. Moderates tend to be Democrats who are embarrassed to be called Democrats. And independents tend to be Republicans who are embarrassed to be called Republicans. That's, that is, uh, listen, I'm not actually making that up. That's actually real. Uh, that actually is real. An independent does tend to be a Republican who doesn't want to be identified as one. Moderate tends to be a Democrat who doesn't want to be identified as one. That the, the president went up five points with independent voters suggests the president is consolidating the center right. 
which is somewhat good for him as he heads into a week for the Republican convention. Now, uh, that in and of itself is significant for a particular reason. There is Pew polling out, and the Pew polling is actually rather interesting polling for the president here. Um, The Pew polling suggests that the president really does have an inroad with the the, uh, crime issue. Now, I've told you guys before that I thought it was very notable that for several weeks, the Democrats and members of the media all were very resistant to even acknowledge that there were violent rioters in all the protests in the aftermath of George Floyd. And it was only a couple of weeks ago that the Democrats started talking about how there were violent protesters and those violent protesters needed to be condemned because they were overshadowing legitimate protesters who had legitimate concerns. On top of that, there were um, members of the media coming out and saying that, okay, that there is something happening now in Portland, Oregon. They didn't want to give the president credit for acknowledging there was violence there. They wanted to say that it was the federal troops in uh, Portland that were instigating it. But when they left, the violence continued. You have all of these situations. And now suddenly we're seeing in the pew, the number five issue in America now is violent crime. Number four is the virus. Uh, one, two, and three are their standards. The one, two, and three are always fairly standard, and I tend to gloss over them. Uh, there's the economy, healthcare, and the Supreme Court, th- those three. Now, of those, the GOP actually has an in with the economy and the Supreme Court, not with healthcare. And the Democrats have an in with the virus. Oh, overwhelmingly, voters favor Joe Biden to handle the virus than Donald Trump. What's remarkable is they favor Donald Trump to handle the Supreme Court and the economy and now violent crime. Violent crime is suddenly an issue. It was not an issue several months ago. It has skyrocketed to the number five position of the pupil. But there's there's more than that. Number six is foreign policy, but number seven is something else you normally find at the bottom of the list. Gun control. Gun control. But the data shows that the GOP has an advantage on gun control. I know that's not what you were expecting. Well, it it may be you. If you're listening in your center right, you probably knew that. But if you listen to the media coverage of guns and gun control, it is overwhelmingly negative towards the president and the Republicans' position on guns. It is overwhelmingly negative towards the Second Amendment. It is overwhelmingly negative towards the surge in new gun owners in this country. But believe it or not, the Pew poll shows that the number seven issue now in this country is guns, and the Republican position is supported by more voters than the Democratic position. Now, not by much, only by a few percentage points, but that's still notable. I have said all along, and I've said it several times recently, what do you, what's another word for a gun owner? Republican. And there's been a huge surge in gun sales in this country to law-abiding American citizens. And in the last two months, the number one purchaser of guns has been black families. Are they really going to stick with a party that wants to take those back? A party that wants to defund the police, take them out of black communities, 
and the black citizens are going to have to keep, take care of themselves and protect themselves with their guns that the Democrats also want to take away. There's an issue here for the GOP, and it's percolating in the polling, and you can see it in the polling. Violent crime and gun control are two issues that are surging in the polls. Again, uh, number five issue now, according to Pew, is violent crime, and number seven now suddenly is gun control. And on both of those issues, Republicans have an advantage. On the economy, Republicans have an advantage. On the Supreme Court, Republicans have an advantage. On uh, on violence, the, the Republicans have an advantage. And on guns, Republicans have an advantage. Now, the, the Democrats have an advantage on health care and on the virus. And those two issues are significant in the polls. And the president and the GOP need to figure out a way to handle the virus and come up with some solution to the virus. But there is good news out there. And we should not be dismissive of the good news. Uh, week over week, the 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 trend lines for the virus are actually good. My, my buddy Casey Maddox actually uh, has been posting some of the good news here. Let me read you a couple of his tweets. The United States has fewer new coronavirus cases yesterday than any day since the end of June. The seven-day average for new coronavirus cases is now the lowest it has been since June 30th. We're on the right side of the curve. Let's keep moving. It's not because of fewer tests. It's the lowest positivity rate since June. Yesterday's 32,000 new cases was the fewest single day since June 22nd. Seven-day average continues to drop to the late June levels, 22% fewer new cases today than two weeks ago. All the trend lines are in the right direction. Trend lines are in the right direction. Everything seems to be in the right direction. This is good news. And if the president can continue in this direction, that means that the coronavirus will go down in the polling. And what will come up? Violent crime and guns. And the president actually wins on those issues. The more you push the Democrats' issues out of the top five issues of concern and raise Republican uh, things that voters like Republicans for, the more that helps the president. And we're starting to see this in the polling. If the GOP can maintain this course, they definitely do have something they can run on. There are so many people right now. This is actually an important point that I think really needs to be raised. There are so many people right now who genuinely, truly believe that uh, Joe Biden has won the race. And, you know, I say if the race were held today, Joe Biden would win. And I think just objectively on where we are based on the metrics and the polling, that's true. But the race is not today. The race is in November, and you've still got what, 73 days until the election. Things can change pretty rapidly in news cycles. Things can change pretty rapidly uh, in, in the direction we're headed in the country, and it is very possible for Republicans to turn this around. If the virus recedes and the economy begins to rebound, the president has a real in. If the Democrats cannot get their Antifa supporters to get a clue and calm down, uh, the president has helped. There's a way forward for the GOP. All is not lost. And then there's something else you need to be mindful of. The Republican convention starts tonight. By the way, I've decided I'm going to live stream some of it. If you follow me on Instagram at EW Erickson, I'm going to I'm going to live stream 
some of it on Instagram or Facebook. You use Facebook, E.W. Erickson, either one. I'm going to live stream some of it. I'm going to sit on my front porch, have a glass of bourbon cigar, watch some of this. Nikki Haley's going to speak tonight. Uh, the GOP is advertising that 50% of the speakers are going to be Republican or 50% of the speakers are going to be women. 50% of the speakers are actually going to have the last name Trump. Believe it or not, that helps the GOP. If you look at polling in Georgia, if you look at polling in Texas, if you look at polling in Arizona, if you look at polling in Florida, if you look at polling in North Carolina, the Republican brand actually outperforms the Trump brand. By making this not the Republican National Convention, but the Trump National Convention, it actually insulates the GOP to a degree that helps the president. It insulates the GOP to a degree that helps the GOP. It insulates the GOP from the president, makes this about the Trump administration, not about the Republican brand. And so people who don't like the president can vote against the president while also not destroying the GOP in the process. It provides a level of insulation. And I don't know whether it was strategically done or not, but by making this the Trump convention and not the Republican convention, the president actually is giving some breathing room to those parts of the GOP uh, that are a little bit intimidated by the negative polling for the president because a lot of those voters, it looks like, and I've heard this from a couple of U.S. senators now, there are a number of places. Cory Gardner is a good example in Colorado where it looks like he's going to outperform the president. Cory Gardner may get elected in Colorado, and if so, the president's not going to win it. It's more voters will vote for Cory Gardner because they're not opposed to him or the GOP brand. They're just opposed to the president. Making this convention all about Donald Trump helps people like Cory Gardner and people like Susan Collins. I don't know that that's a strategic purpose, but it certainly is the way this is playing out. And that's actually not bad for the GOP that is playing out that way. A lot of grumbling that this is all going to be the Trump show. That's actually a good thing for the GOP. A, a, a word, if you will, here. Uh, Kellyanne Conway is going to leave the White House. Uh, George Conway is going to step back. They are needing to put their family back together. Uh, it, it's kind of kind of appalling to see some of the, the snide nastiness uh, that has been, you know, social media really does bring the worst out in people. And I, I know this, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself uh, over time. And, and I've never used an anonymous account on social media and those who do, I think uh, it's even worse. Uh, The, the, the people who hide behind anonymity, uh, the people who relish being trolls, um, it's, it says something about their own character that they wish to be a troll, that uh, they, they get their thrills by being nasty to other people, by trying to, to prank other people, um, by, by just being being incivil. Uh, we, we're at an age where it's very, very easy to, to do that. It, it, it's very easy to masquerade, pretend to be someone, uh, to, to be nasty in ways you would never be in public. Uh, rarely, rarely, rarely will you find someone who is nasty anonymously over the internet that is actually nasty in public. Oftentimes they're a nice person in public uh, and they just, I, 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 there's something psychologically unbalanced about the people who do that. Uh, I mean, we've had people call this program in the past who uh, they, 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 they're trolls. I mean, they, they, it's what they do. There, there's one guy who's called occasionally in the past who he, he feeds off of Facebook live and the like, and he, does all sorts of uh, comes on and, and drops profanity and other things uh, on the show, and, and you got to kick him off. And he records it uh, so that he can do a show where I mean, this is how he's got fame trolling other people. 
And you've seen that in the last 24 hours with this announcement from Kellyanne and George Conway that they're both stepping back. Uh, their their daughter, who is not much older than my child, uh, has gone on TikTok and just made made some pretty terrible statements about her parents. And and th- th- this has clearly been a divisive issue, the presidency of the of Donald Trump for the last several years in that household. And so they have decided to step back, and good for them. There is a compulsion in this day and age for people to put fame and power ahead of family. And it's nice to see a family that's putting family ahead of the politics of the age, uh, ahead of their own fame and fortune, ahead of their TV contracts, uh, ahead of their, their connections in the white house and the like to, to just step back and take care of their family. And they should be commended for it. And it's a really awful sign of the depravity of some people who just seem to be uh, cheering on the collapse of a family, very much like the Rose Garden situation. This is bizarre. Uh, So the first lady, Melania Trump, there there have been a number of renovations made to the Rose Garden over the years. And the White House Historic Society has been pushing over time to get the Rose Garden to go back to the original design that Jacqueline Kennedy put in place uh, with white roses. Some trees had been put in. The shade from the trees was causing deterioration in the roses. They needed to get rid of the trees. They got bigger than they were expected. They were harder to keep up with. The roots were doing damage to the garden. And so they wanted to get rid of these trees and they wanted to replant uh, from based on clippings from the original roses. They wanted to redo this. Well, the left is having a meltdown over the freaking rose garden. All Melania Trump did was restore the original design that Jacqueline Kennedy put in place. In fact, the landscape architect is still alive. She was a young lady who was friends with the Kennedys who helped. And the White House Historic Society and Melania Trump consulted with her to get the garden back to the way it was supposed to be. And suddenly it's it's partisan. Suddenly it's terrible. Suddenly it's awful. Suddenly it's bad. One guy actually suggested that perhaps it looks like uh, the hidden symbols of the KKK in there with all the white flowers. It just, I mean, my mind was blown at the outrage. Uh, Kurt Eichenwald, who used to work for the New York Times and and several other pieces, uh, places out there is saying that this is is, uh, terrible. This woman is an immigrant to this community, to this nation. She should have left it alone. What does that have to do with anything? That she's a foreigner, an immigrant. How dare she touch the Rose Guard? All she did was put it back to the way it was with Jacqueline Kennedy. It's what the White House Historic Society has been asking for for years. And in fact, Michelle Obama began the process. That, that's that gone underreported that it was actually Michelle Obama began the process. Uh, but they had to get cuttings. They had to restore certain roses. And it, it ultimately fell to Melania Trump to get it taken care of. And the, the amount of, of hate and spite for this woman doing what was widely acknowledged needed to be done is, is really bizarre to me, but it goes to just how partisan everything has become. I just, I, I don't get the level of hate out there these days. People are so spun up about this stuff. I don't understand it. It's not good for their soul. It's not good for their country. And yet, People are spun up about all sorts of stuff these days. Sorry, I'm having to take a sip here. I got something caught in my throat. Um, I, I'm, I, I just, the, the whole thing is weird. And social media 
has a lot to do with it. Social media brings out the worst in people, brings out the trolls, brings out the people cheering on the collapse of a marriage uh, between the Conways. Uh, it, it just it, it's increasingly Twitter is bad for the society. More so than Facebook or anything else, Twitter just seems bad. And it, ironically, it's the one place that the reporters love. Reporters love Twitter. And it allows them to reveal themselves and actually has helped undermine people's trust in the press. We'll be back. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the number. It is Eric Erickson here uh, across the state of Georgia and beyond. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got to play a soundbite for you before we get to calls. I got to play a soundbite for you. I want to play you the full context of this and then focus on the short part of it. Um, because this is going to go into Republican ad campaigns. I guarantee you this is going to go into Republican ad campaigns. This is Joe Biden's interview with David Muir of ABC News. We are here in Delaware because we just sat down with the Democratic ticket, the first joint interview with former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris. It comes just hours after Joe Biden accepted the nomination for president more than 30 years after he first ran for the office. They did not hold back today. No questions off the table. Robin Roberts and I will have the entire interviews Sunday night. But the first clips right here tonight. Joe Biden's acceptance speech promising to heal a divided nation, saying he is the Democratic candidate, but wants to be an American president to bring light and hope to this season of darkness in America. His wife, Jill, joining him on stage, as well as Senator Kamala Harris and her husband, Doug. And then in these unusual times, they celebrated with supporters who were in their cars at a safe distance at a drive-in event outside the fireworks in the sky over Delaware. But they are both aware of the crises in this country, the pandemic, the economy, the fight for racial justice. They told us they would unveil a new pandemic strategy on day one. And one of the questions we asked, would you shut down the country again if there's a second wave? And if the scientists said, that's what we need to do. If you're sworn in come January and we have coronavirus and the flu combining, which many scientists have said is a real possibility, would you be prepared to shut this country down again? I would be prepared to do whatever it takes to save lives because we cannot get the country moving until we control the virus. That is the fundamental flaw of this administration's thinking to begin with. In order to keep the country running and moving and the economy growing and people employed, you have to fix the virus. You have to deal with the virus. So if the scientists say, shut it down? I would shut it down. I would listen to the scientists. Yeah, let's focus on that a little bit. I would be prepared to do whatever it takes to save lives because we cannot get the country moving until we control the virus. That is the fundamental flaw of this administration's thinking to begin with. In order to keep the country running and moving and the economy growing and people employed, you have to fix the virus. You have to deal with the virus. So if the scientists say, shut it down? I would shut it down. I would listen to the scientists. Yeah, um, that's going to be a Republican ad campaign. That is going to make it into the ads, I promise you. I'm already hearing Republicans gearing up with that. And you know, the the polling on this actually turns out now increasingly to be on the Republican side, growing skepticism of of the shutdowns. I think it was the right thing to do at the time. I do. Um, But 
there's a growing sense that we can't do it again. And most Americans, it seems like, are are unwilling to shut down again. So I, I, I don't know that this helps Joe Biden. I just, I don't think it does. Let's go to the phones. I want to go to Seth, calling from Atlanta. Seth, thanks for being patient. Welcome. Hi, Eric. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I just had an idea for the upcoming uh, GOP convention. And uh, when Trump gives his big speech, I think it would be an interesting idea to have a have it interspersed with multimedia presentations showing all the violence from Portland and all the stuff that he doesn't want to show the public. <laughs> like his ad campaign at the Washington Post where he had pictures of burning America behind the smiling faces of, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He could he could be on stage with the with the pictures of, of the protesters behind him. You know, it, it, Seth, that's that's actually that's not a bad idea. Uh, you know, so the the optics the optics for the Republican convention are that this is going to be the Trump show. And uh, for those of you watching the live stream, we 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 weren't sure whether or not we had a troll or not. So we we tend to see. So let me give you a a, a pull back the curtain just a little bit. We had Seth call from Atlanta, and when we're we're when we have someone call the show, and there are certain red flags that we go through to whether or not this person is actually calling to, to troll the show or not. Um, we, one of the things that we do is we tend to send the live feed into commercial break because most of those people are watching the live feed and they want the video from it. And so we don't give them that satisfaction. You'd be surprised how often it discourages trolls from calling the show. Uh, but so Seth called and his point is that the president should show images of the riots and the violence from around the country while he's on stage and do a multimedia presentation. That's really not a bad idea. It's really not a bad idea. Now, I, I can tell you what I know about the president's speech. Uh, l- let me give you some of the insight of what we're going to see. And and uh, if you want to follow along, I'm thinking I'm going to sit on my front porch tonight, just like I did with the Democrats' Zoom call. I'm going to sit on the front porch and and watch it uh, and maybe live stream some of it. Nikki Haley is going to speak tonight, among others, and and I get my in-person reaction to what's going on. But it, what I'm told is that they have uh, reserved a place in Washington, and they're going to have a limited gathering in Washington of people spread out watching it, a, a live audience, to be able to have a live audience reaction. The president, I am told, watched the Democrats' convention and did not like the video call feel of it. Um, thought the speeches were too long, given what how they were presented, and wants uh, a tighter presentation. You know, this is the president's element. The president of the United States is actually good at planning these sorts of things. He's hired some of the apprentice producers to help him plan his convention. So you may have all the Hollywood stars of the Democratic Party one, but you've got competent TV producers handling the Republican one. They're going to have it in a convention location. They're going to have a live audience. The president himself will address the nation every single night at the 10 p.m. hour. I'm not sure that's wise, but it's what the president wants. Uh, he will uh, speak on Thursday night for sure from the South Lawn of the White House. Melania Trump will speak from the Rose Garden. 
and uh, they're going to make a big deal out of it. And you're going to have a normal, it, it appears, you're going to have a normal style roll call of the states where I thought the Democrats, it's the one thing I thought the Democrats fundamentally got right. That is, they did that roll call of the states and they had the pre-recorded clips that they played uh, and uh, people were able to see. Some of them were live, some of them were pre-recorded, and they were able to get all the people queued up and record that roll call of the states by going to the states, from going to monuments of the states. And I, I thought they did a good job with that. But I just I, I'm I'm interested to see how the Republicans pull it off. And if it's a less Zoom call, I think that actually works for them. By the way, uh, viewership of the Democratic convention last week was down twenty uh, percent, seventeen to twenty percent from four years ago. Uh, Joe Biden got twenty uh, some odd million viewers to watch his speech, but that was less than what Hillary Clinton got. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the GOP does now. But uh, this is this is going to go back to it. Let me play this clip again. This is important. I, I think this is something that we need to focus on. This is going to come out in Republican advertising. I would be prepared to do whatever it takes to save lives because we cannot get the country moving until we control the virus. That is the fundamental flaw of this administration's thinking to begin with. In order to keep the country running and moving and the economy growing and people employed, you have to fix the virus. You have to deal with the virus. So if the scientists say shut it down, I would shut it down. I would listen to the scientists. If the scientists say shut it down again, he's going to shut it down again. Regardless of where you agree or disagree with shutdown policy earlier this year, I do think it is safe to say at this point that if we shut down the country again, it's not going to go over like the last time. The last time you had a virus, we didn't know a lot about it. Uh, we were overwhelming hospital resources. Uh, we we needed to remember, recall, flatten the curve. It wasn't going to get rid. Now I realize they've moved the goalposts on this, but it was never about flattening the curve or getting rid of the virus. It was always about allowing hospitals to ramp up, which is what we've done. Hospitals are not overwhelmed. I want to talk about that in the next hour. There's actually uh, some local news here that I want to focus on here in Georgia. This is going to be an ad campaign because most Americans don't want to shut down the economy again. Most Americans don't want to go through that again. And it's it's not going to be good, I think, for the Democrats. And they have a problem. Uh, the Trump team has a money advantage on the Biden team right now. This is coming out in ad reservations. Now, here's here's what ad, how ad reservations work. Campaigns reserve ad time in states. So, for example, the Biden team has reserved ad time in Texas and Georgia, which the media was all abuzz about. Oh, they're going to make Texas and Georgia competitive. But they haven't actually placed ads in Texas and Georgia. They just put some money down to hold some time. And they've only put down $8 million in ad reservations. For comparison, the Trump campaign has reserved $200 million in ad time in swing states. It is absolutely, positively, indisputably clear that the president is on defense and Joe Biden has more avenues to get to 270 electoral college votes than the president does. The swing state polling for the president is not great, but the president still has a path to victory. 
and the president has more money to burn to get his message out. And if the virus recedes, again, some of the top issues are the economy, which favors the Republicans, crime, which favors the Republicans, and guns, which favors the Republicans, and the Supreme Court, which favors Republicans. I mean, if the virus recedes and goes away, the Republicans in, in, in the top issues, they've got the economy, the Supreme Court, crime, and guns. The Democrats right now have the virus and healthcare and foreign policy. If the virus goes away, it, it, it trickles up the list. Um, a lot of Republicans favor Democrat foreign policy. The Republicans have some advantages here. The virus puts the president on defense. The virus goes away. It opens all sorts of avenues for the president. The Republicans, and, and I do think the people in the media who are pointing this out, I do think it is it is truthful, it is clear, it is honest, it is accurate that the Republicans right now do in fact have a problem with the virus and the public's perception of the of it. But if it can recede and the trend lines are headed in the right direction, that gives the Republicans some ammunition moving forward on building their campaign. Let me play this clip by Chris Wallace. Uh, this is he's confronting Chris Coons, uh, a senator from Delaware. Yeah, uh, talking about Joe Biden. Why didn't Joe Biden talk about the alarming spike of violence in our cities? Well, Chris, what we heard from Joe Biden Thursday night was an inspiring, energetic, hopeful, and uplifting speech. Uh, In response to press inquiries over recent weeks, he's made it clear he doesn't support defunding the police and he doesn't support violent protests. What he does embrace is the tens of millions of Americans of all backgrounds who've taken to the streets in peaceful protest over recent months, speaking to the long unaddressed issues of racial injustice and inequality in our country. But, Senator, we're not talking about protests here. We're not talking about defunding the police. We're talking about crime. And let me put up some very troubling numbers. Chicago has seen a 50% increase in homicides this year. In New York, murders are up 30%. In Portland, there have been often violent protests, protests that become violent for 86 straight days. Police there have declared riots at least 13 times. Why? Does Joe Biden think it's happening and what will he do as president to stop it? Well, three things, Chris. Joe Biden is someone with a long record of supporting appropriate community policing. Just because Joe Biden and Kamala Harris see a path forward in which they will reform policing uh, to make it more just and more appropriate in our multi-ethnic, multi-faith community doesn't mean that they fail to support police. You know. The Democrats are going to need a better answer on this question, but if they have a stronger answer on this question, they run afoul colliding with their base because their base is convinced that the protests are legit. Their base is convinced uh, that the protests have merit and and voters don't. Listen to Kamala Harris on the very issue of, of police and, and police on the streets. You have Kamala, top cop. And the book that you wrote 10 years ago, Smart on Crime, where you conclude by saying that you wanted to see more police on the street. Do you still feel that way? Listen, I think that there is no question. First of all, when I wrote that book, um, we, Black Lives Matter did not exist. And I give full credit to the brilliance of that movement 
in terms of what it has done to advance a conversation that needed to happen a long time ago. What Black Lives Matter has done as a movement has been to be a counterforce against a very entrenched status quo around the criminal justice system in America. And that's why I'm so excited about what we can do in terms of a new administration in the White House that is about taking on these issues in a way that makes clear that Does the American answer? people are ready for it and they want it. And so it's about a policy that says we're going to ban chokeholds and carotid holes. George Floyd would be alive today if there had been such a ban. We need that ban. That's part of the policy and the platform that a Biden-Harris administration is going to fight for. Notice she didn't answer the question. The question was, do we need more police on the streets now? And she avoided answering the question, this is a problem for the Democrats. I did not intend to spend the entire hour on this particular point, but it is a point that must be made and highlighted. According to Pew, which is one of the best pollsters in the country and tracks these issues, violent crime is now one of the top five issues voters are concerned about. was not a top five issue in the last year, and suddenly it is. And the Democrats have been caught flat-footed on it in large part because their base has been captured by the angry mob. Speaking of the recipes, you know, y'all have been bugging me about getting back to the recipes, and, and I've taken my time. Because so I've been doing this potato flake sour. You know, I started a regular sourdough starter. I, I started a, a, a regular sourdough starter and I, I got good at it. I got proficient at it, but nobody in the whole house wanted it. And it's like, I don't want to be baking bread every week only to throw the loaf away. And I guess I give it to the neighbors, but I wanted something that the family would actually eat. Well, my mother-in-law makes a sourdough and she uses potato flakes. And I, and I, I got a recipe, I, I got a card and I, it just, I, it leaves my head scratched. Like what, what on earth? Um, so I decided I would try to duplicate it as best I could. I got various recipes online and I, I think I figured out the potato flake starter and it actually, it, it's sweeter. It actually has sugar in it, uh, and potato flakes. And you actually start it with commercial yeast. So it actually is less intimidating, if you will, than your normal starter. And I like it. I like the bread. It makes cinnamon bread. I make regular bread with it. And so I've, I've got to put that out. So text recipe to 33777 and prepare yourselves for the rollout of new recipes. Now, we got other stuff we got to talk about out there today. One of those things is the numbers in Georgia. Uh, the virus in Georgia continues to head in the right direction. Uh, the the date of report and the date of onset uh, are good. We are now uh, at, at in the seven day moving average at two thousand two hundred seventy seven cases. Uh, which, for perspective, uh, now the seven day moving average, just so you know, it stops on August tenth right now. Uh, but the seven day moving average is right where it was on June twenty fourth. So we're back to the end of June in the seven day moving average. And we're continuing, even with schools opening, we're continuing a downward trend. There had been a bit of a spike in the number of confirmed cases. And the trend line, though, has held up. Uh, even as kids are going back to school, that the spike is showing that we're headed in the right direction. Now, even with the date of reporting, 
There's a little bit of a hiccup, uh, but the trend lines are in the right direction. Now, you don't have to believe me. You can see it for yourself. Text the word data to 33777. Also, I mentioned the Robinhood app to you guys, and if you text data to 33777, you'll get a link. That's an investment app. If you want to buy Bitcoin or, or invest or whatnot, you can use that link and do it. Um, I get a share of stock if you sign up under my name. They, they uh, Actually, I think I've maxed out now, so I don't get anything, but you can use that link uh, and if you want to check out that app, but be careful with it. Um, prior criticisms stand. But you can see the data by texting data to 33777. And Georgia trend lines are in a good direction. You know what else is in a good direction? And we need to talk about this because this is other good news. The reserves for the state of Georgia have held up. They were expecting uh, the, the, the economists, the statisticians, the budgeteers, they were expecting a billion-dollar drop in reserves or in, in uh, income for the state of Georgia. It only went down $250 million. Do you know why? Interestingly enough, do you know why? Because the governor only let the state shut down for a month. Turns out economically, keeping the state shut down for only a month was a wise move on the part of Governor Kemp. The state of Georgia's economy has rebounded faster than other states out there. That's a good thing, folks. That's a good thing. It is making Georgia far more resilient than many of the other states, like New York, that's shut down for far longer. It's me. It's me. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here at the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm going to do what I'm always slightly hesitant to do on this show, but it, it needs to be done uh, we have so many stations in North Georgia. You just need to know we are feeling the effects of the far outer reaches of all this tropical disturbance, the the, the tropical storms that are uh, moving into the Louisiana, the Gulf Coast area, Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas. And if you are in, it, rain is starting to clear out for the most part in the Athens area, uh, but north of Athens, uh, up in Clarksville and Demarest and Clayton and Tiger and, and the like, you, you got rain incoming uh you're going through waves of it uh same in in the rome area you got sprinkles up 75 the dalton the jasper area the blairsville area the blue ridge area you just got nasty rain same in the atlanta area you've got more rain and, and athens will get more as well here in middle georgia where i am in macon and south georgia right now uh most of it is blown through uh but more waves may come through and it's just it, it's all light none of it's really heavy it's just nasty outside it is gross um it, it is it's like like we're, we're, we're stuck in mother nature's butt crack or something right now the sun's not shining and it's just it's gross that's that's a I, that's a vivid image maybe i shouldn't have i i've had too much coffee uh, nonetheless it's just it's gross outside um here in macon where i am it literally is 96 percent humidity it is not foggy it's just gross you walk outside and you feel like you gotta swim uh to walk down the sidewalk there's so much humidity in the air and that is a byproduct of tropical weather systems um okay now that i've gotten that mental image stuck in your head uh it is time to focus on some good news The state of Georgia, I mentioned at the end of the last hour, is actually doing fairly well. When it comes to the um, when it comes to the economy 
and the budget and the reserves of the state, you can make all sorts of criticisms of the governor of the state of Georgia. But what you cannot criticize is his fiscal stewardship in the state. His reopening of the state ahead of where so many people wanted uh, with so much criticisms of the governor for reopening the state early actually has left the state in a fiscal position that is better than most other states. The Atlanta Journal is reporting as well that the budget for the state of Georgia is not having to eat into reserves as some expected. The state was expected, was projected to have a billion with a B, $1 billion loss in state reserves. And instead, it's only been a $250 million with an M loss. And in large part, that has everything to do with the governor reopening the state after a month and allowing the economy to recover. Jobless claims in Georgia have continued to go down. People have gotten back to work. And there's been an economic rebound in the state. Uh, Georgia is losing fewer small businesses than other states. And that's all good news. And it's not going to be credited to the governor, you can tell. There's a big brouhaha over Governor Kemp writing an op-ed in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution regarding uh, his, his take on the good news in the state and the AJC highlighting the bad news. And what I thought, I got to tell you how this works. I I thought it was very funny. Uh, So the governor writes an op-ed and says that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which has just highlighted all the bad news, needed to focus on some of the good news. And reporters at the AJC uh, were indignant on social media. I I can't believe the governor said this. Read what the governor said. Leak here. Uh, We've been, I can't believe the governor would attack the AJC and the AJC. Clearly, they were getting traffic. Let me read you part of the governor's op-ed. Georgia is making progress in the fight against COVID-19, but you wouldn't know it from reading the state's flagship newspaper. Every day, readers see COVID-19 numbers, including a tally of cases and hospitalizations with no context provided. The editorialized front page is crawling with sensational news that undermines confidence in state agencies and school leaders. And when the anger boils over, the editorial board prints a list of baseless grievances coupled with a clickbait headline. During the crisis, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has turned into a tabloid rag appealing to supermarket shoppers waiting in line six feet from their neighbor. Since the paper of record refuses to live up to their mantra of compelling, credible, and complete coverage, I'll do it for them. As of August 20th, our seven-day moving average of new cases reports is the lowest since July 10th. Our positivity rates are declining from 11.86% on July 27th to 9.2% on August 20th. Hospitalizations are down 10% over the last seven days and sit now at 2,573, down 522 since August 1st. And our transmission rate remains below one, a key metric in the spread of the virus. Many states are sinking economically, but we're weathering the storm. Georgia avoided draconian budget cuts, maintained our AAA bond rating, and added thousands of new jobs in July. Moody said it best, Georgia's strong governance and fiscal management will enable the state to sufficiently manage the economic downturn. While encouraged by the trends, we remain focused on the challenges to come. 
Recently, we extended the shelter-in-place order for the medically fragile to prevent every unmasked gathering of people seeking to thumb their nose at an invisible yet very real virus. The order continues the large gatherings ban. Every day, we're urging Georgians to wear a mask, practice social distancing, and wash their hands. We're begging for locals to enforce the current guidance. In short, we're doing our job to save lives and jobs. Now it is time for the AJC to do theirs. The AJC must acknowledge Department of Public Health Commissioner Toomey's expertise and that public health officials are not a monolith. Every article written requires both sides of the story. Let the readers, not the editors, decide who has better data and more convincing arguments. Secondly, if the AJC really believes that mask mandates will end the pandemic, use the front page above the fold to urge Georgians to wear one. Better yet, put your money where your ink is and send a mask to every subscriber. Keep calm and stay home is catchy but terrible advice. Instead of urging folks to hide away, which will destroy jobs and ultimately lead to increased suicide rates, lower educational outcomes and violence, use the paper to urge Georgians to safely shop local. Finally, the AJC should remember that our rights are worth protecting even during a crisis. The paper chided my decision to protect private property owners from government overreach and urge, not mandate, Georgians to wear masks. This is still America, right? The only way to beat COVID-19 is by having all Georgians make smart decisions. You can mandate masks and issue stay-at-home orders, but every person will ultimately decide what to follow and what to ignore. People, not government, stop the spread. Georgians doing the right thing will make a difference, not smug editorials. This is a critical moment in our fight against COVID-19, and it's time for the AJC to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Well, every reporter at the AJC wanted everybody to make sure, I can't believe he would write something like this. This is so Trumpian. Read it, read it, read it. The AJC wanted the traffic, and boy, did they get the traffic. From what I'm told, they got a lot of traffic on Brian Kemp's op-ed. And good for him to make these points. You know, this is a a, a philosophical point. I, I have favored mask mandates. The governor has not. But the governor makes the soundest point that gets overshadowed. Uh, unless you're going to round up everyone and jail them, you can't really mandate that everyone wear the mask, can you? Um, and, you know, so we've got in, in my neighborhood, well, we have a remote control Karen in our neighborhood now. <laughs> so at the front of our neighborhood, they put one of those those traffic display things from the sheriff's department where it shows you what the speed limit is and then how fast you're going. And if you're five miles over, it flashes red and blue lights like you're getting pulled over. And I just, I drive past it every time and make the point of stepping on the gas just to make the lights fire. <laughs> I slow down on the other side. It's just, it, it's one of those things. Um, the, the the remote controlled Karens out there of it, reminding people to slow down. But that's the larger point here is you got to remind people to wear their masks and you got to remind people that we're still in a, in a pandemic and people are going to have to be wise and make decisions. If you're not going to round everyone up and throw them in jail for not wearing a mask, you just, you've got to reasonably talk to them and explain to them that they've got to take proactive steps to keep themselves and their family safe. We are nervous with our kids going to school again. They're out of the house. They're with their friends. We've already had an issue at our school, but you know what? Our school followed all the procedures in place and has kept everybody safe. My concern is the stuff we don't know and the people who who aren't willing to tell. Like, for example, in, uh, what was it, in Cherokee County, I believe it was, had an elementary school student who showed up at school and after the first day, turns out they had the virus. 
And the reason we know this is because they had been tested before school started because the child was having symptoms, but the child, y'all need to follow along with this because this one just blows my mind because this is the number one grievance I hear from, from teachers all the time. The number of parents who will mask a kid's symptoms with medicine and send them off to school. This child was having COVID-19 symptoms. The parents got the child the test. The test had not come back, so they sent the child to school and at the end of the first day of school got the results and the kid was positive. And so they had to tell the school, why do you send your kid? If your kid is the, the slight, has any symptom whatsoever, why are you sending your kid to school? And yet they did. And that's on the parents. It's on the parents. Y'all, I, I just, I'm, I'm, th- th- this is, it, it's, you've, you are only as safe as the least responsible person in your circle of friends in your community. And everybody's got to step it up. Now, I am aware of a school where a kid came to school on the first day, and while they were at school, discovered that their uh, a friend they had hung out with a few days before had tested positive. And the kid put on his mask, went to the front desk, told him what had happened, and the school took all the precautions possible to make sure that everyone was safe and and. Uh, mitigated the situation and informed everyone in the school. That's the only reason I know about it is, is I heard about it uh, and from, from the people it happened to. And if your school puts in place good procedures and discloses everything and keeps everyone informed, this is the other problem. By the way, I, I realize if, if you're a school administrator or something, you're in school right now, you may not be listening. Um, those of you who, who, who aren't, uh, but you know them, pass them along. This is a key thing you got to be careful of. The rumor mill. When you get a bunch of kids together in a school, they're going to start talking and gossiping, and the game of telephone begins. I heard from so-and-so that so-and-so is out of school because they tested positive for the virus. And then they go home and they tell their parents, well, the school, which promises to disclose stuff, hasn't disclosed stuff. And so the question is, do you believe your kid or do you think the school is not disclosing what the school said it was going to disclose? Uh, the, uh, the ability to undermine through misinformation is a problem. And it is something that you're going to need to be mindful of as, as we start getting kids back to school. Now, there are some counties that still don't want to open. Cobb County uh, doesn't want to open. They want more data. They, they want more data on the virus before they reopen. Other school systems have reopened. Certain schools get shut down because they see the virus. Private schools are actually doing a better job of getting open and getting kids out of the house because they've got more robust protocols. They, they can suspend and expel with gusto, unlike a, pri- uh, unlike a public school. Although, you know, there's been a, a global crashing of Zoom today. Zoom is shut down right now. If you can't get into your Zoom call right now, it's not you. The whole network has shut down globally. So that's going to interfere with parents. But y'all, um, this is this is a an issue. We got to get kids back to school. The data is on our side, even with schools reopening, even with a couple of spikes in school districts. The trend is headed in the right direction. We have turned the corner. Hospitalizations are down. ICUs are down. ER visits are down. The virus is down. And the governor of the state of Georgia has done a good job. He balanced. He had to balance your health with an economy. And I think he's done a good job of it. I, I don't agree with everything he's done, but I he was in the position to make the calls. He made the calls, and he's done a good job balancing it. Georgia fiscally will come out of this ahead of almost every other state because of his leadership. 
And you're not going to hear that in the newspaper. You're not going to hear that on TV, but that's the truth. All of the budget shortfalls Georgia was expecting never came to pass. The horrible unemployment in Georgia was bad, but it rebounded quicker than other states. This is all good news. It is. If your business has not yet uh, rebounded and you need some help, you need access to capital, you need a loan, you need some bridge financing, uh, I hope you'll talk to my friends at First Liberty Building and Loan. Uh, They sponsor the program. They're good people. Uh, The Frost family has been helping businesses since 1993. They want to help your business if you need help. They've navigated people through PPP. They can navigate you through various financing options to help your business get access to capital and help your business grow. Now, if you've got a really small business, they probably can't help you. But if you want to grow your business significantly, they absolutely can help you and they want to help you. The Frost family has been committing to growing Georgia businesses since the early 90s. They know how to do it. They have some innovative solutions. And unlike big banks, they actually make their own lending decisions. Uh, so you're not going through a major bank bureaucracy with uh, First Liberty Building Alone. You're actually going uh, with the family. They're in Noonan, Georgia. They're local to us, but it doesn't matter where you're listening to me right now. Anywhere in the nation, First Liberty Building Alone can help you. Uh, their website is firstlibertyga.com, firstlibertyga.com. They can help you. They can help grow your business. They can help navigate you through the wide world of PPP. They can do all sorts of stuff for your business when it comes to growing your business, getting access to loans and capital. So go to firstlibertyga.com and let the Frost family help you. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. At the bottom of the hour. Charles Mizrahi is going to join me, uh, the, the investor. He's got some pieces that are out circulating now in defense of capitalism, something I think we pro- all probably need to pay attention to. But before we get, I don't know if you know this or not, but NASA is saying the day before the election, an asteroid is going to pass by planet Earth. A lot of people disappointed it's not going to crash and kill us all. <laughs> Sweet meteor of death, where are you? It really is the number of people who were who were um, uh, uh, upset about the the asteroid passing by. You know, can I just say for for just some some added perspective here? We've got it looks like now two tropical storms, no longer hurricanes, that will be impacting the Gulf Coast. What do we have here? Um, we've got what is it, Laura and Marco, or are those the names? Um, yep. Tropical storm Laura looks like it is actually going to get to hurricane strength and will impact, uh, the, uh, East Texas, West Louisiana line. And then there's poor old Marco is that's what we're feeling here. All the rain and stuff, uh, is just going to be a tropical storm and, and curtail into South Louisiana, put in a lot of flooding, uh, tropical storm Marco is winding up about like Marco Rubio's presidential campaign. It's just kind of fizzling out there along the Gulf coast. Uh, but Laura, Laura is going to have some impact, uh, and will cruise into the nation. Uh, looks like on uh, Thursday at full hurricane strength and then sail up through Arkansas and then curve over towards Washington, DC, uh, we'll make for fun times. It will impact the nation uh, right around Thursday as the president addresses the nation. But now beyond that, so we've had we've had the fire tornadoes, earthquakes. It looks like a bunch of volcanoes are suddenly getting active. The the big volcano, not Krakatoa, the other one in, in Indonesia, 
is getting active. Uh, you know, it, it, whatever happened to the murder hornets? Have we figured out what happened to the murder hornets? Did they just take around, look around and say, we'll be back in 2021. We, we don't want to stick around for 2020. You got the epidemic, uh, the pandemic. You got the election day asteroid. It's like Exodus is, is I'm waiting for the swarm of locusts across the nation. What is God trying to tell the United States? Two tropical systems impacting Louisiana at the same time. Uh, the fire tornadoes and the earthquakes in California, the murder hornets in the Pacific Northwest, a pandemic all over the place. Well, what is God trying to tell us? I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just nature. And, of course, you know what the left is saying. I actually said this yesterday uh, online, and, and some blue checkmarked reporter said, maybe it's not God, it's climate change. All right, then, if that's what you say. <laughs> deeply unpleasant people, some of these reporters, just deeply unpleasant people. Now, when we come back, Charles Mizrahi is going to join me. He is a financial expert, and he actually uh, has a piece out today I was not going to talk to him about. And then a, a buddy of mine sent me his piece, and I was like, well, what do you know? I've got him on the phone here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, prosperity and generosity, the biblical roots of capitalism. I'll talk to him about some of that. But also his prior article, In Defense of Capitalism, uh, he's a big financier investor type. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. I'm actually very – I've never talked to Charles Mizrahi before. I know who he is, but I've never talked to him. Very interested to do this. Stick around for our conversation when we come back right here on The Eric Erickson Show. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, joining me by phone, uh, the author of a couple of, of great columns in the last couple of weeks and the founder of Alpha Investor, uh, Charles Mizrahi, who has been involved in Wall Street for 40 years. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. Good morning, Eric. So, you know, I wanted to ask you about your, your last column, and, and then um, my buddy Matthew sent me this uh, column you had pinned today in Real Clear Religion about the biblical roots of capitalism. And it's a subject that fascinates me, having been in, in seminary and often hearing uh, people cite back to the Old Testament. There, there's so much there. And just wanted to let you talk about this today. The the, the capitalism has actually the ability to trade has been around for a whole lot longer than command and control economies. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly has. It's been around for close to three thousand plus years. And and the thing that I think that a lot of people miss is that uh, wealth in the Jewish Bible is not something that's negative. In fact, uh, God blesses Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Solomon with wealth and wealth is not the problem wealth and how to use it and how to apply it back and, and, and put it back to society. That's the key. And the, and, and, and the, and the, the Bible has so many ways and of, of helping the poor through agriculture, for example, uh, there are close to six laws, biblical laws on what one must do in terms of having land, uh, the corners of the field, for example, can't be harvested. That's for the widow, poor, and, and the, um, the, uh, the orphan. The gleanings that reapers pick up and those they drop behind, that once again goes for the end of belly society, and so on and so forth. It deals with grapes and immature clusters and grapes that fall down in the vine. Uh, 
the the point is is that wealth is a responsibility, and when one has wealth, they are responsible to help the poor and help the needy. It's not sufficient and it's unjust to hoard money, and that was the point I was trying to make in my article, how how that is something that is just overlooked by. I would say liberals and those who want to do away with capitalism, they think capitalism and the way they interpret it is to be a cold, terrible place. And it's not. It creates opportunity. It takes care of the poor. And this country was founded on Judeo-Christian values. So uh, our system works and not only works, it works exceedingly well. Well, you know, people on the left, I think they would hear you and me discussing this and they'd say, well, you've got so many of these uh, Wall Street financiers and hedge fund managers and Jeff Bezos and they're hoarding all the wealth. But actually, when you look at it, they they spend a great deal of that money. Take Bill Gates, for example, spending billions of his own money to help with the research uh, on coronavirus and and buying mosquito netting for countries around the world dealing with uh, with um, malaria. And, And we see this time and time again, people stepping up in private charity. In fact, I, I think your, your prior article uh, mentions the percentage of Americans who actually give uh, to nonprofits. It's actually a staggering amount of money that private Americans give to charities uh, without any compulsion from the government to do so. Exactly. Uh, you know, you, you bring up some great points. And, and for example, uh, you mentioned uh, individuals, uh, 70% of all giving, 70% of all giving, $286 billion is by individuals. The government doesn't hold a gun to your head and say you have to give. The Americans are good people. You know, By and large, we are uh, a tremendous nation in terms of caring for others. When there's crises throughout the world, it's Americans who care about what goes on in the world and cares about those who are less fortunate, those who don't have, and those who are being persecuted. Uh, that's, that's what I, I just don't get. I, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me how the facts say one thing and the story of others just distorts it or overlooks it. You take two of one of the richest people in the world, Bill Gates and, and, and Warren Buffett. And what do they do? They create in 2010, the giving pledge. They go over to fellow billionaires and they tell fellow billionaires, I want you to sign this pledge that says you're going to give away half of your assets at the time of your death to give it back to society. And since they've done this in the last 10 years or so, this is a staggering number. $1.2 trillion has been pledged to give back to society. Uh, Bill Gates, you mentioned him at the Gates Foundation. He leaves his company to give as a full-time job. He creates the Gates Foundation, and over the past 20 years, the Gates Foundation has given away $54 billion, $54 billion. It's staggering. Uh, um, uh, Working on on global health challenges to improve childhood vaccines, uh, create new vaccines, control insects that transmit agents of disease. Uh, Is anyone forcing him to do this? No, he feels it's his responsibility because he made so much money and created so much wealth for himself and for so many others that he needs to give back to society. No one told him to do this. This is the right thing to do, and that's what he chose to do. So the rich people, the wealthy people, the top one percenters, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing with their wealth. And I I just don't get what the other side of the argument is. 
Well, let me ask you a, a question, because one of the prevailing theories right now on, on millennials and, and Gen Z and why they're so uh, welcoming of the idea of socialism is that uh, as they were coming into the economy, you had the, the 2008 financial situation, a, a, a recovery that wasn't much of a recovery. And now we've hit this and, and they believe that the systems around them in the capitalist structure that we have in this country have failed them. And it just it seems to me that one, they have no appreciation for what the alternative is. They just think it must be better because they don't see that this one is. And, and two, uh, they actually do have an extraordinary amount of opportunity out there that's just uh, untapped potential. Uh, I, I agree with you 100 percent. You know, look, uh, this these are problems we have. 2008, the financial crisis, yeah. Presently, with COVID and the shutdowns, yes, we do. But this is not the Great Depression. This is not a situation where people are starving and have no food. And who said that you're supposed to get help? Why you create out your own opportunities? We think of what the government has done. They've uh, they've turned on the the, the 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 fire hydrant and just poured out enormous, enormous amounts of capital. I, I'm, just, I'm just so excited to see the amazing businesses that entrepreneurs are going to have and the amazing job creation over the next three to five years. And it's going to start right now by saying we had cheap money, the government was giving out money and loans, and look what we did with it. And to bellyache, to bellyache that you live in a country where it's, it's the envy of the world where people are, are standing at our borders trying to get in. We're coming from poverty. You know, we joke in, in, in our household that when we mention something and we always go, that's a first world problem. Right? Most, mm-hmm. most problems in the world is getting clean water, having sanitation, uh, having enough calories to exist for the day. Are, are these problems that most Americans have. <laughs> that that's a good point. Um, but so, what, what do you think? If if you were king for a day, what would you be looking at right now to try to get uh, millennials and, and Gen Z who feel left behind by the current economy to to get into the economy? Well, um, I, I don't think there's a magic wand because I think it's a mindset. Uh, uh, during the Great Depression and doing th- throughout recessions throughout U.S. economic history, uh, there have always been opportunities and always been people to take advantage of those opportunities in amazing ways. I remember when I was leaving high school uh, in 1980, late 70s and 80s, uh, New York economy was horrendous, horrendous, horrendous. Uh, a few years before uh, President Ford, the famous uh, headline was Ford to City, drop dead. They weren't going to give uh, New York money. <laughs> Uh, sanitation was cut. There was no police. It was it was about as bad as it is now, uh, um, in terms of in terms of the way the city's going downhill. It was just terrible. You know, I remember in high school it was so depressing to even try to think of the future. We had Jimmy Carter as president uh, in 1979. Failed the hostages were taken, and, and that was a failed rescue attempt. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan. It looked bleak. It looked very bleak. But uh, um, Americans find ways to use what's at hand and create opportunities. We're living in a country that has these opportunities all around us. Think about, I just think about for example, 20 years ago, if you wanted to start a business, the enormous amounts of capital one would need just for computers and infrastructure and and programming. Today, you you have this on the cloud. It, It costs really pennies what it cost tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars just five to 10 years ago. So 
I wish I could say, okay, everyone follow this business plan. Or I think it first starts with waking up in the morning and being grateful for where you are. Of all the places on, on planet Earth, if you can wake up in America, you're already, you're already ahead of the game by, by 50 feet. If this was a 100-foot race, 100-yard race, you're 50 yards ahead of everyone else. So look around and see what opportunities there are and try to fill them. Look how many businesses are being created over the past several years uh, that never existed before, that we've even thought about having food delivered to your home and, 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 and cost service companies like Uber and Lyft, which, which were and Airbnb. These were just ideas of young entrepreneurs who thought, here's a problem, let me solve it. But if we're going to walk around thinking that we're going to wait for government to write us a check and to help us, and it's our due, that's not the American way. And unfortunately, that was, they're going to end up in the dustbin of history because history shows us that those who seek opportunity are the ones who prosper. Those who wait for any type of aid and help, unfortunately, just stay there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I'm 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 dwelling on this one, and I'm thinking of it at the same time. I'm I'm looking at so much flirtation among so many of the political elite in this country with what goes on with China. I mean, you, you have the the Tom Friedmans of the world who think we, we've got a lot to learn from China. I'm actually curious on, not not necessarily your, your take per se just on China as, as a standalone issue, but the number of people in this country in particular who seem to think that there are things we can learn from China with its command and control economy and how they've co-opted capitalism into it that they seem like they would have in this country as the solution for younger generations. That really troubles me uh, personally that it seems like there are so many people in this country at the political elite level who think that we can learn something from China on on how they govern their so-called capitalist communist hybrid system. Yeah, I tell you what, have your listeners start a GoFundMe for any politician who wants and let them go to Hong Kong. We'll fly them to Hong Kong. And you can ask the citizens of Hong Kong what they think of China and their capitalist quote unquote system. Uh, not good. <laughs> what they're trying to do now in Hong Kong is ridiculous. So, uh, so you know, look, you talk about intellectuals. I remember back in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, colleges, college professors throughout. I remember going to college and hearing professors talk about it, how communism was just an alternative government, a government system. What's <laughs> to say communism is not better than democracy or to say democracy is better than communism. They're two equal, equal. They have caused more death and destruction in the 20th century than any, any persecution, any, any time in history between China and, and Russia, close to 100 million people killed. And, and these are the economies, and this is what we're going to emulate and follow. And right, right here, right in front of us, we have a system that is the envy of the world that attracts people in rowboats and climbing walls and trying to dig tunnels to get into our country. And we're going to look at these countries that have no freedom uh, um, and have this kind of uh, – uh, I, I don't know even what to say. Just look at what Russia does to people who get too powerful. Uh, right. They, they don't yeah, last just, too long. This, you know? this bizarre flirtation of, of people who look at China and say, oh, it, it's almost like they think that our decline is inevitable and they just need to be put in charge to manage it because because China's going to be dominant. And I just keep thinking, you know, the only reason America's in decline is because we choose to be in decline. We could choose to surge ahead of China, but there are just people who seem like they've stopped actually. They, they, they give lip service to it, but they don't really believe in the greatness of the country. Eric, we are not in decline. 
that is that is false. We, this country is not in decline. Just before the pandemic, we were 3.4 percent unemployment. The economy was humming. We got hit from left field to blame any person, any political system for a pandemic is just absurd. But let's put that aside for a moment. We are still in a country that we're moving forward. We're getting out of this. There's pent up demand. Look at retail sales. Uh, the experts said experts said that retail sales should be going down. And three months in a row, they've been going up. Used car sales are supposed to be going down. Prices, they're going up. Uh, housing is going. What, this isn't supposed to happen. The experts, the experts were wrong on this because no one has ever made money shorting America. And now's not the time. And to think that we're in decline, really one needs to just really look at the facts instead of listening to the stories. Well, I got to leave it there. That's encouraging to hear you say that. Uh, it just It's so frustrating hearing people want to bet against the country and, and really only do it because of the political season. They want to badmouth things. So I'm glad yeah. to have you here yeah. and ha- have yeah. some upbeat yeah. views. Great. Eric, I, I want to thank you. And I just want to mention one thing that I read a newsletter, Alpha Investor Report, and it's basically written towards Main Street Americans. I write it so anyone can understand. And what I, what's bothering me now is I'm focusing on Main Street Americans to take back their financial future in these trying times and rekindle the American dream. So I put aside up Alpha Investor now, and I'm giving away a 30-day free subscription. All you need to do is just enter your email, no credit card, no anything, no gimmicks. I just want people to have this information so they can take hold of their financial future and stop thinking of themselves as victims and look at the amazing opportunities we have right in front of us. AlphaInvestorNow.com. I got it pulled up. I see your face right there. <laughs> I'll go okay. sign up myself, Charles. Listen, thank you so much for stopping by. I've really enjoyed this. It, it, it's always great to hear an optimist on our economy talking right now when so many people want to talk it down. Uh, Eric, thank you. And I consider myself a realist. And if realism is optimism, then I'm guilty. Perfect. Thank you very much. Charles Mizrahi, Alpha Investor Now is his website. You can go sign up at no cost uh, for his newsletter. He's been in this game for 40 years. He's a realist and he sounds optimistic. That's a good thing. Friends, Romans, countrymen, Georgians, Americans, lend me your ear. I come to brag about True Precision. Uh, True Precision, they made my concealed, well, they didn't make my concealed carry gun. It's a Glock uh, 43X, but man, did they make it gorgeous. Not only that, they upgraded the barrel, they upgraded the slide, they upgraded the sights. I got to do the trigger. They've got a new trigger in. You can do this with True Precision. I realize there are a number of of, uh, different companies out there that do this sort of thing. I think they're the best. I really think they're the best. Uh, and I was a customer of theirs and now they want to sponsor the show. And, and that's the key here of why I can say in all sincerity, I think they're the best. I was a customer of theirs before they started advertising on the program. And I, there were others who could have advertised, but nope, we went with true precision because they are the best true dash precision.com is their website. True dash precision.com is their website. You can go check them out. Uh, they don't just do Glock. They do other guns as well. Slides, barrels, triggers. You can do all sorts of great upgrades with True Precision. So many people are buying guns right now, and they all look the same. They're black. Or occasionally you get like the, the camo khaki color or, or the gray, but most of them, they're black. With True Precision, 
you can get a, a camo slide. You can get a, a, uh, a copper looking barrel. You can get all sorts of stuff to make your gun, your gun. And you do it by going to true-precision.com. You can order the parts online. If you use Eric, E-R-I-C-K, as your checkout code, you'll get 10% off, which is a great deal for this stuff. Uh, now, you, you need to go. So many people are using them, I'm told, that uh, they're starting to get a little backlog. So if you're thinking of doing this, you need to go now. Uh, the, the gun purchases in this country are just insane. I've got a buddy of mine. In fact, he's been on the program, Stephen Gutowski. Uh, he is probably the best reporter on guns in the country. I probably need to get him back on here to talk about the last couple of months. Uh, he goes every weekend to a gun store. And he was noting on Twitter uh, on Saturday, he has not been able to go to a gun store in months without having to stand in line. And that's not the pandemic per se. It's there are so many people going to buy guns. Uh, there really are just a ton of people out there right now uh, getting guns. And, you know, again, what do you call a gun owner? Republican. Number seven issue, according to Pew, all of a sudden is gun control in this country. And that issue works for the Republicans. Uh, more people support the Republican position on guns than Democrats. And that's very interesting considering the Democrats started the last or the second to last night of their convention with a call for gun control and raising taxes and grabbing your guns. Now, when we come back, I, I dare to spend just a little bit of time on some good news about the virus. What's the real world situation in Georgia? I've got some data to share with you when we come back. Hello, America. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of my program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I hope you guys had a great weekend. I need to give you some real-world data on the virus. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be hesitant on the virus and not spend too much time on it. But I just, I, I find this uh, fascinating. Caleb Slinkert at the uh, Telegraph in Macon has a comparison uh, with Navicent and with Coliseum Medical. Now, full disclosure here, I, I feel I should say this. Um, I, I have a bias among, so Macon has two big hospitals. It has Coliseum and it has Navicent. And uh, when I was a lawyer, my law firm represented Navicent. It was then actually called by its proper name, the Medical Center of Central Georgia. Uh, they, they got a new CEO whose brilliance was to rebrand as Navicent, which is a garbage made up word, uh, which just I, I always hate it when corporations do that. It's like BB&T and SunTrust merging into Truist. They're not True Bank. They're 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 truest. It's 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 kind of true bank. I just it it, it frustrates me. But and I I I had a, a really bad experience in the emergency room at, at the medical center one time uh, where I had uh, a, a clot in my lungs. I knew it and sat there for three hours and finally went over to Coliseum and they thankfully were able to take care of me uh, immediately. And then part of that is that um, Navicent is the nonprofit hospital in town and and deals with a lot of people who come in to the emergency room as primary care. But nonetheless, um, I'm a big fan of Coliseum Health Systems in, in Middle Georgia. I, I really am. Uh, Northside Hospital and Coliseum, they they do tremendous work. And they have also dealt with the virus. And I want to read for you this to put this in perspective because it's perspective I, I don't necessarily know that uh, we're hearing. 
in late June, after months of social distancing, shelter-in-place orders, and encouragement from health experts and government officials to wear masks and wash hands, Coliseum Medical Centers was treating fewer than five people for COVID-19, down from a pandemic peak of 31. But as Governor Brian Kemp relaxed shutdown restrictions and middle of Georgia left their houses to return to work, dine out, or celebrate holidays, many unmasked a second wave hit. On July 23rd, Coliseum hospitals were treating 49 COVID-19 patients. On August 6th, it was up to 64, more than double the early pandemic peak. The number was down to 45 as of Friday, and Coliseum Health System CEO Steve Darty emphasized that the system's two medical Macon hospitals, Medical Center uh, and Northside, have never, pay attention to this, have never run out of critical supplies and have the capacity to treat non-COVID patients. Darty noted that early in the pandemic, people who visited the hospital with COVID-19 symptoms were very, very ill and were typically older patients with other health challenges. This placed a high demand on the hospital's ICU beds. Then Bibb County, as well as much of the rest of Georgia and the United States, experienced a surge in cases. It was a larger wave The patients were younger, and we still had a fairly significant number of critically ill people in a high demand on ICU beds, he said. Darty said Coliseum has never been short of PPE, personal protective equipment, or critical supplies like ventilators. The company that owns the hospitals, HCA, actually moved ventilators out of Georgia to New York City early in the pandemic when New York City was suffering a surge of cases. If you look at the impact of the hospital, COVID-19 patients are typically only 25% of total hospital capacity. They do take extra resources and require a higher level of care, and we've been able to meet that demand. On August 3rd, the Georgia Health Department launched a statewide dashboard for hospitals to report their saturation diversion status to EMS agencies. The Diversion Dashboard uses the National Emergency Department Overcrowding Scale, NEODOCS, they call it, to rate how busy hospitals are and note whether those facilities are asking ambulance services to divert patients to other hospitals. The dashboard, updated several times throughout the day, is designed to give EMS professionals insight on where to transport patients. It represents a point in time. For the most part, we've been able to activate our surge plan and care for people who arrive at the hospital, Darty said. There are times we have to go to diversion because we're full and that allows EMS to distribute patients so no hospital is overwhelmed. It changes day to day, hour to hour. For much of the past week, Coliseum hospitals reported they were either normal or busy with Coliseum Medical Center under total diversion. Navicent Health's downtown medical center status has been severe with diversion for people in need of ER, ICU, or NICU, and other services. Navicent Health has consistently declined requests from the media to provide the number of COVID-19 patients being treated at its hospitals. In an email response to Telegraph questions, a spokeswoman noted that Navicent is full but not overcrowded. As a tertiary referral center, we frequently reach capacity at our 637-bed Macon Hospital, and we work with other hospitals in our system and region to ensure patients in need receive uninterrupted care. The medical center is back to normal pre-COVID business volumes, according to a statement, and the number of COVID-19 patients treated at the hospital make up a fraction of the overall patient volume. 
Now, I, I, I read you all of this to, to give you a, a um, well, a, an idea of where we are as a state. And I want to look uh, at the, the Regional Coordinating Center and, and give you some ideas here of, of where we are. Um, when you look at the areas, I, I'm looking in counties. And let me give you some, some real-world data from the counties. Uh, let's So in Bibb County, you've got Coliseum Medical Center in downtown making this list as busy. And their uh, Coliseum Northside Hospital is normal. They have some ICU diversion. The medical center, Navicent Health in Bibb County, is listed as severe. It's got ER diversion, ICU diversion, medical diversion, neonatal ICU diversion, uh, and, and several other diversions. But let's go to Carroll County. You've got a severe, uh, listed a severe capacity in Carrollton for Tanner Medical Center, but it's normal. There are no diversions. And let's see, how about we go to Cherokee County, Northside Cherokee is normal. I, I'm, I'm just, I, I want you to get a sense of what's going on around the state. In, let's see, in Darty County, Phoebe Putney is listed as normal. There's some ICU and neonatal ICU diversions, but their capacity is normal. In Fanning County, Fanning Regional says it's normal, has no diversions. In Floyd County, the Floyd Medical Center says it's normal and has no diversions. And Redmond Regional Medical Center in Floyd County is normal as well. Northside Hospital in Forsyth County is normal. Uh, in Fulton County, Grady is severe and Wellstar AMC is severe with some ER diversions, but otherwise it's normal. Continuing to go through the list here uh, to give you a sense of this, in Habersham County, Habersham Medical Center, is listed as busy, but with no diversions anywhere, which is good. In Houston County, Perry Hospital is listed as normal with no diversions, and Houston Medical Center is listed as busy with ICU diversions. In, let's see, Lowndes County, South Georgia Medical Center is listed as busy, but no diversions from the hospital. In Monroe County, Monroe County Hospital is busy, but no diversions from anywhere. In, see, Pulaski County, Taylor Regional Hospital is busy with ICU diversions. In Richmond County, University Hospital is listed as overcrowded with ICU diversions. Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center is also listed as overcrowded, and that's the Augusta area, is normal. Augusta University Medical Center is busy with ICU diversions. Uh, in Thomas County, John Archibald Memorial Hospital is listed as overcrowded with ER and ICU diversions. The reason I want to walk through this with you and show you these is that overall the situation in Georgia overwhelmingly is good. Uh, I can give you real quick, I can give you the ones that are busy and overcrowded and severe. Uh, here, here are the hospitals that are listed as in severe restriction right now. There are three in the state of Georgia. The Medical Center of Central Georgia, Navizant Health in Bibb County, Grady Health Systems in Fulton County, and Wellstar AMC in Fulton County. 
The hospitals that are listed as overcrowded right now, well, wait, hang on, that's wrong. Uh, Also, Tanner Medical Center in Carroll County is listed as severe. Now, the others, and again, this, this is, to me, this is very important to give you a sense of what's going on here in the state of Georgia. Uh, You've also got overcrowded hospitals, Gwinnett County in Burke County in Richmond County. You've got four hospitals that are overcrowded. Now, let me give you the busy hospitals. The busy hospitals are the hospitals that they've got a flow of traffic higher than what they normally have, but they're not overcrowded and they're not stretched thin. And you have busy hospitals in these counties. DeKalb, Toombs, Bacon, Douglas, Bibb, Sumter, Clayton, Richmond, Habersham, Cobb, Bartow, Ware, Fulton, Glenn, McDuffie, DeKalb, Fayette, Rabin, uh, Monroe, Pulaski, Henry, Barrow, and Lowndes counties. Out of 159 counties, that that's it. Now, I know we got listeners up in Rabin County, and, and you need to know Mountain Lake Medical Center says it's busy, but it's normal. It's not diverting people. If you listen, this gets full circle to Brian Kemp's editorial in the AJC. If you listen to the news coverage in the state of Georgia, by and large, what you get a sense of is that our hospitals in the state are at the verge of breaking. Our hospitals in the state are overwhelmed and that we have a massive influx of patients. There are four hospitals in the state of Georgia that are listed as in severe condition. And what is severe condition? Severe condition is they're maxed out in space. There are four of those hospitals. The Medical Center of Central Georgia in Bibb County, Grady Health Systems in Fulton, Wellstar AMC in Fulton, and Tanner Medical Center in Carrollton in Carroll County. Those are the only four. There are one, two, three, four, five hospitals in the state of Georgia that are currently listed as overcrowded hospitals. Five, that's it. Those five are uh, Eastside Medical Center in Gwinnett, Burke Medical Center in Burke County, University Hospital in Richmond County, John Archibald Memorial Hospital in Thomas uh, County, Charlie Norwood VA Medical Center in Richmond County. That's it. Folks, that's really good. You would never know that from so much of the coverage. So much of the coverage is designed to make you concerned. So much of the coverage out there is is designed to to raise flags with you. But we're headed in the right direction as a state. We are fundamentally headed in the right direction as a state. We are fundamentally, with the data, trending downward. Even with schools restarting, even with the stories of spikes in schools, even with the story of, of community spread in certain parts of the state, the hospitals in Georgia are not at capacity or overrun. The hospitals in Georgia have plenty of ICU space. The hospitals in Georgia are working together to make sure hospitals that are full in ICU, patients can be diverted to hospitals that aren't full. I mean, take, for example, Navison Health in Bibb County. It's severe with a maxed out ICU. Navison Health in Baldwin County, Milledgeville is normal with with no diversions. You need to be responsible. You need to wash your hands. You need to keep your distance. You need to wear your mask. But the situation in Georgia is not at breaking point. The situation in Georgia is actually trending in the right direction. The economy in Georgia is doing well. The economic chaos that was predicted did not come. 
The job cycle rebounded quicker than people expected. People are going back to school. Life is going back to normal. There are things you got to do to be responsible. There are things you got to do to keep it safe. But the data is all headed in the right direction. And some people just can't help themselves. They, they're just they're they're so addicted to the bad news at this point, they can't even give the governor credit right now. They can't recognize the trends are going in the right direction. They can't recognize our hospitals are not overwhelmed in the state. And overwhelmingly, everything is headed in the right direction. We should be happy where things are. And yet some people just can't be happy at this point, and that's problematic. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson. Today, the Republican convention starts. At this time in 2016, according to the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, the president was behind Hillary Clinton by nine points. According to today's NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, the president is behind Joe Biden nine points. Uh, There is a write-up by Aaron Zittner in the Wall Street Journal. I want to read you some of this. President Trump heads into this week's Republican National Convention with national polls showing him trailing his race for re-election. But surveys also identify strengths in his political standing, some of them not widely noted, that could help him close the gap. Mr. Trump lagged behind Democratic nominee Joe Biden by nine points. The president's share of support now at 41% hasn't topped 44% this year against Mr. Biden. Mr. Trump also trails the former vice president in aggregate polling in most battlegrounds. The president's public image has picked up some shine. More voters saw Mr. Trump in a negative light than a positive one in the most recent poll by a margin of about 12 percentage points. But at this time, four years ago, negative views outnumbered positive views by 33 percentage points. There are some other signs Mr. Trump could improve his position in the race. An improved image among white voters. Among white voters, Mr. Trump lags behind his 2016 vote share as recorded by exit polls, but in a sign of improvement, white voters in the most recent journal NBC News poll were divided almost equally between positive and negative views of the president. Four years ago, by contrast, negative views significantly outweighed positive ones. Trump improved his image among whites by 20 points in the last four years, said Michael Roberts a Republican pollster who works on the journal NBC News survey with Democrat Jeff Horwood. It's very important because they are more than 70% of the electorate. Holding steady with Hispanics, Mr. Trump trails his 2016 support levels among many groups. Among Hispanic voters, by contrast, he appears to have maintained or even improved his standing. Some 31% of the nation's largest ethnic or racial minority group say they will back the president, a slightly higher share than the 28% who voted for him in 2016. Hispanic voters are not a unified block, and their partisan profile varies by state. But Mr. Trump could make gains in Florida, Arizona, and several other battleground states if he cuts into Democratic margins among Hispanic voters. Intensity and anger can drive turnout, and Democrats sought to use their convention last week to unify voters who dislike Mr. Trump's combative style. But Mr. Trump has also boosted Republican intensity. Interest in the election has risen among Republicans in the past month and now matches Democrat interest. Some 85% of Republicans rate themselves as highly interested in the election compared with 83% of Democrats. 
Some 27% of voters say they would be optimistic and confident if Mr. Trump were elected, compared with 14% who said so in 2016. By contrast, 19% of voters said before the Democratic convention they'd be optimistic about Mr. Biden. So let me say that again. 27% of Republicans would be optimistic or confident if if Donald Trump were reelected. 19% of voters said that the Democratic convention about Biden. The journal NBC News survey in July looked at voters who haven't ruled out either candidate and are in play in November. Those voters as a group have characteristics that suggest they are open to Mr. Trump. Some 22% have a positive image of Trump. Only 11% have a positive image of Biden. They prefer a candidate who will confront the Washington establishment, a hallmark of Trump's pitch to voters. In addition, these voters want Republicans to lead Congress, 42% to 25%. These voters make up 13% of the electorate, meaning that Mr. Trump would need to win a large majority if he was relying on them to close the gap. And then there's the economic argument. Polls have consistently turned up voters who say Mr. Trump has done a good job handling the economy and won't commit to, but won't commit to reelecting him. In August, 48% said he was the best candidate able to deal with the economy, 10% more than Joe Biden. Yet more people said they'd vote for the Democrat. Mr. Trump is sure to use the convention next this week to argue that voters who think he can revive the economy should send him back to Washington. There's a path forward here. There is a path forward. And in one of the big paths forward for the president, he's managed to narrow the gap with a very key and important group of voters who managed to decide 2016 for him. I'll tell you what that group is when we come back. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, you know, I'm going to commend my, I'm going to pat myself on the back. Normally I tease you people with what I'm going to talk about and then I forget. <laughs> I, I'm bad about this and I admit I'm bad about it. And my poor call screener gets people calling all the time, yelling at it. He said he, when he came back, he was going to talk about this and he's not talking about it. I'm going to, the, the tease was there's an optimistic sign for the president's reelection in the shift in data in a key group of people. You need to understand this. And it's something I didn't fully appreciate in 2016. The number of people who hated Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump was significant. But the people who hated both candidates equally overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. The thing a lot of Republicans have not realized in 2020 is that likewise, there are a lot of voters who don't like Biden or Trump. And Biden has led significantly with those people. And according to the new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, turns out the president has narrowed the gap with Joe Biden. And then there's the dislike of the parties. Let me read you this from the uh, Wall Street Journal report of its polling. In 2016, the Democratic Party had a substantially stronger public image than did the Republican Party. While both were viewed in a negative light, negative views of the Democratic Party outweighed positive ones only by four percentage points, whereas the GOP was underwater by 21 points. Now, that's not a good way to look at the polling because Republicans in 2016 hated the Republican Party, hence Trump. That's something that a lot of people don't appreciate is that in 2016, 
Republicans were more likely, pay attention to this one because it doesn't get reported enough, because it defies the narrative, but it's a fact. In 2016, Republicans were more likely to have a critical view of the Republican Party than Democrats were. Can you believe that? It's true. Republicans in 2016 hated the Republican Party, and that's why they went with Trump. Today, both parties are tarnished equally with negative opinions of the Democrats running eight points ahead of positive views compared with 11 points for the GOP. So the favorable view of the Republicans by Republicans has improved and the people who hate both sides are equally split between Trump and Biden, unlike 2016, where they were overwhelmingly like three to one going for Donald Trump. Those are all good trend lines. If you will, please. I want to say one more thing. This gets lost in the data, and this is not a partisan point, and please don't hear this. Don't interpret this through a partisan lens, please. Because I want to make a a serious point. It's a political point, but it's not a partisan point. And this, to some degree, is a defense of something Joe Biden said the other day. When Joe Biden was asked, he said that unlike African-American voters, Latino voters were not monolithic in their views. And he actually wasn't wrong in what he said. It's about respect. It's about honor. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. That's what we're going to do. Dignity, honor treating people with dignity. We can build a new administration that reflects the full diversity of our nation and the full diversity of Latino communities. Now, when I mean full diversity, unlike African-American community and many other communities, you're from everywhere, from Europe, from the tip of South America, all the way to our border in uh, Mexico and in, in the Caribbean. Now, Biden was attacked for that by suggesting that, that African-American voters were a monolithic block. But what he was talking about is, uh, in background, black voters in this country tend to overwhelmingly be Americans who are black, who have been multi-generationally Americans. Hispanic voters in this country or Latino voters, depending on how you want to call them. Uh, No one says Latinx except white liberals. Uh, Latino, Hispanic voters in this country tend to come from multiple backgrounds. They can come from Spain. They can come from Mexico. They can come from Guatemala. They can come from Cuba. They can come from Puerto Rico. uh, And they're already American. They get to vote. They've moved to Florida. A lot of them, they tend to vote Republican. Uh, They can come from Argentina. They can come from from South America. Uh, it, It is a multitude of people from multiple countries who are in their second or third generation here who are Hispanic voters. They are not a lock for the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has been trying to make Hispanic voters a lock very much like the African-American community is. And I don't think the the black voters in this country are much longer a lock on the Democratic Party, as in arguably the leadership of the Democratic Party trends in thought and in, in leadership push more white secular atheist. But Hispanic voters in this country right now A third of them plan to vote for Donald Trump in November. A third of them. Interestingly enough, 
Hispanic voters in this country who are from a Protestant background, and those are the, the growing class of Hispanic voters in this country, there's a trend line of Protestantism within the Hispanic community. Um, and a lot of Hispanic Protestants in this country come from a charismatic background, which for those of you listening who, who don't understand, uh, an evangelical background and a charismatic background are two different things. An evangelical background tends to be very uh, conservative, Christian, Protestant, fundamentalist. Charismatic background tends to believe in, in the spirit and the spiritual gifts and be Pentecostal um, and, and speaking in tongues and things like that. M- much more charismatic churches uh, and... They tend to be Republican and they tend to support the Republican Party on, of all things, immigration. And you cannot look at Hispanic voters in this country the way, frankly, you can with black voters in this country, where overwhelmingly 85 to 90 percent of black voters in this country will vote Democrat. There are historic reasons for that in this country. Hispanic voters are a newer block of voters in this country, and a third of them are going to vote for Donald Trump right now, uh, and that's the the polling average. The NBC News Wall Street Journal poll is thirty one percent. Some polls have it closer to forty percent. They're not a his. They're 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 not a a uh, lock for the Democratic Party. And Republicans could probably bring more of them over because the the, the reason I bring up the Protestant thing with Hispanics, the longer. A Hispanic family stays in this country, the more likely they are to identify as white and Republican. And a Hispanic family that is of a Protestant charismatic background as opposed to a Catholic background is more likely to identify as Republican. And the trend lines for immigration to this country favor Protestant Hispanic immigration to this country more than Catholic Hispanic immigration to this country. That is a block of voters who are open to a Republican message on, among other things, restrictionist immigration. Why? Because they're fleeing homelands and don't want the people who ruin their home countries ruining this country. People forget one of the reasons Florida went Republican in 2018, despite the odds, are because the Puerto Rican voters who fled Puerto Rico went to Florida voted Republican. Democrats tend to look at things in identity politics in ways that actually can get them into trouble with Hispanic voters. Republicans tend to not look at identity politics in ways that get them in trouble with Hispanic voters. And there are too many people on both sides who have vested interests in their their methodology for trying to get Hispanic voters that they don't, which I find fascinating. Uh, Hispanic voters in this country tend by and large to be one of the most thoughtful and independent voting blocks in the country. They tend to not identify with either political party. And so there are ways for the parties to persuade Hispanic voters. And it also becomes regional. If you are a a Hispanic voter in California, you tend to vote Democrat. If you're a Hispanic voter in Florida, you tend to vote Republican. Hispanic voters in Texas tend to vote Republican, except along the border with Mexico, they tend to vote Democrat. It really is a fascinating dynamic. And just as someone interested in politics, I'm very fascinated with it. And the message I would have to both parties is you can't take the Hispanic voters for granted. Democratic voters, Hispanic voters are in play for the Republicans. Republicans, Hispanic voters are not a lock for the Democrats, but you're losing them. Both parties need to get a handle on the Hispanic voting bloc. Here's something notable. 
more Hispanic voters will vote for Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney in 2012. Fewer Hispanic voters will vote for Donald Trump than voted for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004. There is a message there for Hispanic voters. And the message for the Republicans, frankly, is not a message a lot of Hispanic voters like. Sure, there are those who do vote immigration restrictionist, but by and large, the Republican Party doesn't sound very welcoming in a lot of its rhetoric. But the Democratic Party, too often for Hispanic voters, sounds like the poli- they want the policies the Hispanic voters immigrated away from. They are up for grabs still in this country, and neither party seems really capable of grabbing them. And frankly, a lot of the media voices do in uh, who are Hispanic on Telemundo, Univision, and the like, they do the Democratic Party a disservice because they are so liberal in and of themselves that they're convinced that their liberalism is something that is shared within their community. That's really not true. Demographically, Hispanic voters are some of the most culturally conservative Christian voters in the country. A, a, um, a an embrace of gay marriage and the LGBT, LGBTQ whatever agenda and uh, some of the, their tax policies and softness on crime and, and things like that really don't resonate in the way that some of these celebrity Hispanic voices that whisper in the ear of the Democratic Party actually, uh, it doesn't translate well. But concurrently on the Republican side, They've got issues uh, with rhetoric and language, or believe it or not, rhetoric and language can actually turn people off. And the Republicans have had a hard time. The president is at a third, a third of the Hispanic vote in this country will vote for the president. He could boost that number and win reelection if he puts his mind to it. The president could pull away some black voters from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, if he puts his mind to it. I I don't know that the GOP actually is thinking along those lines, but they really, really should. Uh, In the same way, Democratic politicians who have for a long time presumed that because of Republican stridency, particularly under Trump on immigration, that that would lock Hispanic voters into their party, they're taking Hispanic voters for granted here. And they got to be careful when a third of them are willing to vote for Donald Trump, more of them are willing to vote for Donald Trump than voted for Mitt Romney. You cannot take Hispanic voters for granted. You cannot presume in your identity politics focus that they're going to be in lockstep with you because they're not. I am actually deeply fascinated with the Hispanic vote in this country. And it is multifaceted. It, it does not break for one party one way or the other. It all depends on issues. And it depends, as Joe Biden actually was accurately saying, from their different backgrounds and in different countries from which they immigrated, their different religions. It's something both parties still don't have a handle on in this country. And, and for as many smart people as run both political parties, and they are smart people, whether we want to admit it or not, they are. They still haven't figured this one out, and that makes me fascinated by the whole thing. It is Eric Erickson. Remember, tonight starts the Republican convention, and we'll be carrying it. I'm going to be on on Instagram, and and Philip, who works with me on the website of stuff, has convinced me that I should sit on my front porch and do what I did last week with the Democrats, except live stream this week. I, I you couldn't live stream that Zoom call last week. It, it was just it was it was painful, painful, painful. Um, and, and yet we did it now. Uh, Rona McDaniel is uh, having to defend the RNC because they have the audacity of having a live audience. 
present. You will have, as you said, some in-person activity there in Charlotte. I, I heard you'd have something like 300 people gathering there for official business. How are you going to protect them all from COVID? This is a mass gathering. You know, Margaret, I think it's really important to understand that the Democrats and Joe Biden just said, we're going to shut this country down again. And that is a really elite view of America right now. Now, from a safety perspective, we tested everybody before they came to Charlotte. We have been testing people on site. We are doing the things that are allowing people to live their lives, have a convention, and do it in a healthy and safe way, yeah. which most Americans are doing going back to work as they're going to the grocery store, as they're going to hospitals. This is a realistic way of opening up our country and doing it in a health and healthy and safe way. And the Democrats are saying, shut it all down. Well, that's easy for Hollywood celebrities and privileged politicians, but that's not good for average Americans. It's not good for average Americans. You know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how they do this. They've rented, I, I forget the, the convention hall where the RNC has rented out in DC. They're going to have speakers there. Uh, they're staging it. Uh, I, I heard some reporter describe it as you can't walk five feet without running into an American flag. They're going to make this thing as uh, they'll serve apple pie and hand out flags, I'm sure, to make it as American as possible. But one of the things I'm really interested in seeing is how the media covers it. Because, you know, last week I watched CNN's feed. Now, I got all sorts of criticisms about CNN. But I actually like when they have their their news analysts and reporters. I tend to like CNN's coverage of stuff. It, it's the they leave out the Don Lemons and the Brian Stutlers and the and the Chris Cuomo's. They put in Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer, John King, Dana Bash, Gloria Borger. They're all friends. I like them. Uh, and and they they leave a lot of the the, the drivel on the side. I, I always I felt bad for Scott Jennings last week. Scott Jennings, uh, who is the uh, Republican commentator at CNN last week, it was like five to one. It'd be Anderson Cooper and and four Democrats versus Scott Jennings. Anderson tried to play moderator, uh, and and poor Scott had to hold his own. I used to be in that role back in 2012. That was me. Uh, so I'm sympathetic for him. And, and this week you'll have on CNN, you'll have a bunch of Republicans and one Democrat. I'm interested to see which Republicans they have for the Republican convention. Will any of them actually, other than Scott, be sympathetic to the president? We'll see. Uh, but listen to this. Listen to this audio from Brian Settler at CNN. And what we are going to see in the next few days is a truth imbalance. Because if we've learned anything from the Trump years, it's that there's a, a real likelihood, there's a real forecast of lies coming fast and furious from the president and sadly from many of his allies uh, in these speeches, in these videos, in these events that we are about to witness. There's a real difference, there's a real contrast in how much lying and, and, and deception takes place between uh, Trump world and other parts of the political universe. I don't think we can paint with too broad a brush here, Democrats versus Republicans, but it's definitely Trump world versus other political leaders. I think it's something called asymmetric lying. I mean, look at this. This is from the DNC, a CNN's fact-checking team led by Daniel Dale. Checked out the DNC speeches. Here's the, the review of the first two nights saying, look, uh, the major speakers mostly spoke in generalities, but when they did make assertions of facts, they have been largely accurate. The, the checking of Biden's speech on Thursday found pretty much the same thing. Right. He So he's calling for interrupting and fact-checking the Republican convention. That's what he wants. Interrupting and fact-checking of the Republican convention. If, 
let, let me just say this. I, I've, I've been a defender in general of the media against the president's label that they're the enemy of the people. I don't like everything they're doing. I, I don't think they're the enemy of the people per se. If CNN doesn't cover the Republican convention in an identical way to how it covered the Democratic convention, uh, CNN will be aligning with the Democratic Party. If CNN is stopping Republican speeches or running fact check cryons under the Republican convention, they will be doing Democratic water carrying. The, the, the Democratic speeches were not truthful and honest. Daniel Dale, the CNN fact checker, is a progressive. All you got to do is follow him on, on Twitter to realize it. To, to handle one convention differently from the other, I think, is uh, deeply problematic. But, you know, it gets something the president said. I love that he did this. The president had a press conference, had a bunch of reporters there. Listen to what he said to him. Thank you very much. And it's good to see you all. Hope you had a great weekend at your convention. And we're going to have a great convention coming up, and I look forward to it. But before I discuss a very historic breakthrough in our fight against the China virus, I'd like to provide an update on the recent wildfires in California. Did you get that? No, notice nobody laughed. I hope you enjoyed your convention. He's saying this to the reporters of the White House. I hope you enjoy your convention. <laughs> it's true. It, 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 the the number of reporters who were enthusiastic about the Democratic convention, who were enthusiastic about Joe Biden, you know, I, can I be real honest with you here at the end of this program today? There are days where I just think, man, it doesn't really matter. They all kind of suck. But the number of people who I just, I, I, I almost think, there's a moral obligation for the president to get reelected just for some of these people to learn humility. The, the level of angst and antagonism out there uh, from a number of people who should know better, who they're, they're not going to recognize any level of humility that they really need unless the president himself wins re-election. And, and there are days where I, I almost think it's it's my obligation to go vote for the guy just to teach certain members of the political class and reporters uh, what humility actually is that they clearly haven't learned. I'm, I don't know. There are days where I'm thinking it doesn't matter. And there are days I'm thinking he needs to win just so these other people can have some humble pie. 